Welcome to the Automation Unplugged podcast, the podcast for technology professionals featuring leading industry personalities. I'm your host, Ron Callis. show features Chris Edelin, president of Sterling Home Technologies. Chris is a recognized leader of private equity and family-owned businesses. Chris started his career with Fox Photo, a New York stock exchange company, and advanced to the position of executive vice president slash COO of company operations with sales over $250 million a year. Over the years, Chris has taken leadership roles such as president, CEO, VP of marketing at numerous companies, including Grand Openings, Norwood Promotional Products, Kohler Corporation. Today, Chris is the president of Sterling Home Technologies, a custom home integration company. He also serves on the board of two high growth companies, as well as several charities. We live streamed this interview on social media on Wednesday, August 18th, 2021 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. During our time together, we discussed how the Texas market has grown and developed over the years, the rise and fall of Eastman Kodak Company, the challenges of growing a business in the custom integration industry, the latest supply chain issues related to the COVID Delta outbreak in China, and pulling out of CDN, and the likelihood of other fall events potentially canceling. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do as well. Let's tune into the interview with Chris Edelin. Chris, how are you, sir? I'm great, Ron. Good morning. I guess it's still morning here in Texas and uh, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure and a real privilege to join you this morning. No, it's, it's, it's my pleasure, uh, Chris. Uh, you're one of those guys that whenever I want to just ask you a business question or what should I do in this situation or how should I think about this situation, you always have, uh, frankly, a valuable perspective for me personally. And so I'm, I'm now honored to be able to share you with the rest of our audience and let them meet you and, and kind of learn about your background. So again, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. So uh, let's start with uh, uh, what is what is Sterling Home Technologies? Where do you guys operate and what's your role within the company? Sure. So Sterling Home Technologies, we're starting our 17th year. Uh, we're based in Bernie, Texas, which is a suburb of San Antonio. So we cover basically the greater San Antonio area. We have a hill country office, which goes what we refer to as the Texas Hill Country up in the Highland Lakes area. We just opened that office last fall, not even a year ago, uh, to cover the area of Marble Falls, Fredericksburg, all of the, the Highland Lakes. As, as we've all experienced COVID in the last year and a half or so, that area here has boomed as people have tried to get out of Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and get more rural. So we're, we're basically greater San Antonio within 100 miles uh, is where we go. We've tried to stay out of Austin for many years just because of the traffic, but we have builders pulling us in there uh, as well. So we're we're doing a little bit more business than we ever have in Austin. Well, there's obviously lots of buzz about Austin and uh, what is it? Tesla's moved into uh, into Austin, and so give give the rest of the world. I mean, you can. I don't want to. I'm not dissing San Antonio. <laughs> I'm not. But uh, what, what's going? What's the buzz going on in, in Austin from your perspective? I know we at One Firefly, we actually have our one of our largest concentrations of staff is in Austin. So it's, it's a great town. Well, it's a it's a great city. Both of our boys live in Austin. Uh, they're in their early to mid twenties, and they love the city. It's uh, high tech. Uh, when things started diversifying outside of Silicon Valley, they started moving to Austin. About twenty two years ago or so. Uh, There's a lot of technology there. Uh, Apple has its second headquarters there. It's a billion dollar building they built, uh, started a couple of years ago. And I think it's just recently opened, maybe not even totally open. Tesla, I drove by it the other day, uh, a massive factory they're building for their new uh, Giga truck, I think they call it. 
Um, it's as, as we were driving down the highway, I was saying to my wife, what the heck is that down there? And it's a massive facility. Um, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of companies moving out of California to Austin, San Antonio, and Houston, quite frankly. Cost of living's great. Uh, you know, it's uh, the last several years until this year has been ranked number one place to do business uh, state for business. So just a, a lot going on there. There's a huge high tech concentration of people in Austin. Uh, quite frankly, it's a much yeah. younger city. And there's more money in Austin than there is in San Antonio by a significant way. It's about 30% smaller than San Antonio, uh, but a significantly younger population, more technology driven. I'm assuming is it a fair assumption that uh, to be a, a CI business in that San Antonio, Bernie, Austin, Fredericksburg market? I mean, is is business good? Yeah, business is great. We uh, We've had our our best year ever the last 12 months or so. Uh, we've seen, seen things slow down a bit, uh, but still very strong uh, this year, uh, year to date. Um, pretty confident that we're going to have our best year ever this year when unless the bottom falls out for some reason. But we've had a very, very strong start to the year. And uh, the growth uh, in the Hill Country market is ex especially exciting uh, for us, but San Antonio's on fire, Austin's on fire, all of Texas really is is on fire. So we have a, a global audience here tuning in or listening to the podcast. Do you, do you want those people to stay away, or are you <laughs> welcoming them? What, what's the message here? From you know, a local? Uh, I I grew up in San Antonio. I was born overseas, but uh, it's just growing like crazy from a traffic standpoint. We. We uh, want people to stay away. Austin's traffic is is really crazy. It's like San Francisco, uh, but you know Texas is luring companies left and right from all over the country and all over the world. San Antonio just had a big uh, European company announce their uh, U.S. headquarters is going to be in San Antonio. Uh, wow. Navistar is building their uh, smart truck factory in San Antonio that's underway. Uh, Toyota's based here with a with a big manufacturing facility. Their their U.S. headquarters is in Dallas, so Texas is is really on a roll. So uh, economy wise, I say bring it on. Bring it on. All right, Chris. I got so many things I want to go through, uh, talk to you about with our audience, um, but I always enjoy going into the past. Let's go to the way way back machine. And uh, t tell us about some of the, the highlights from your background that ultimately brought you forward. And you, you joined this industry about six years ago. Right. Um, tell us about the career you had prior to that, if, if, if you're gay. You know, I'll, I'll actually start. I was born overseas. My dad was a World War II fighter pilot. I'm really proud of that. I kind of grew up in the military. Um, one of 10 kids. We joked that we grew up in Edlin's Military Academy because that's kind of the way it was in, in my family. But uh, it was a great, great upbringing. Uh, graduated from St. Mary's University here in San Antonio and went into the management training program at Fox Photo, uh, which was, we were in about 26 states. Uh, I had a job offer, interestingly enough, from Allstate Insurance uh, back in 1981 when I graduated uh, from college. And they offered me $22,000 a year in their management training program. I took a job with Fox at $11,900 a year. My, I think my parents thought I was crazy. Why had they sent me to college when I made that decision? Um, but what was, what was attractive about it is Fox was a bunch of young, aggressive people who were going to make a difference. Uh, we had a great, aggressive seat. CEO. Um, we were trying new things. We were building new businesses and you were promoted and moved up based on your performance, not how long you were with the company. Allstate, very, very different. You were reviewed 18 months, every 18 months at that time. Uh, there was a, a very strict path that you were on. And I always felt from a really young age that I wanted to be judged based on my performance. So I joined Fox. Great. Great decision. Uh, really started at the bottom, 
They, I was supposed to start in the corporate office. They moved me to Colorado because somebody quit the week before I started. And uh, I loved it. I spent a couple of years in Denver, uh, got promoted to Houston, went to then Hawaii uh, as we started buying stores. Our chairman uh, was big on Hawaii. So let's remind uh, our audience what Fox was, because this is not Fox News. This is not the Fox <laughs> on TV. Not, not, a, not at all. And a lot of our younger listeners are not going to even know what you're talking about. So what what was five? It was a Fortune 500 company. It was a it was a publicly traded company. We, we were. Um, so Fox was in the days before the smartphone. And we took our pictures on our smartphone uh, and before digital photography, silver halide photography, you'd take your pictures, 35 millimeter, 110, 126, and you'd go on vacation and uh, you would drop those off at the drugstore, the grocery store. And we had standalone uh, little kiosk on the street corner. We had 1,200 of them in the, across the country. We had a huge uh, regional facilities that did all the grocery and drugstore business across the country. We had a mail order business, and we were also the single largest owner of Hallmark stores in the world um, at that time. So uh, I spent a lot of time uh, and managed Hallmark stores as well. That was a really interesting business. Uh, and uh, so Fox, Fox's trajectory, when I started, digital didn't even exist. I'm sure somebody was thinking about it somewhere, but Mm -hmm. 99.999% of the rest of us were not. Um, mm -hmm. And Kodak at the time, uh, Kodak ended up buying our company. We were a New York Stock Exchange company. Kodak was the second best known brand in the world, uh, year in and year out. And they don't exist today. We can talk more about that later if you'd like. But um, we grew the business really aggressively as a company. I was part of six different uh, sale the company sold six different times. I was part of it when we took it private in a management buyout. It's part of it going public. I uh, was part of it being sold to a uh, strategic acquirer out of St. Louis. Uh, myself, I was the COO when I left. Uh, my, my boss, the president, the CFO, uh, put in an offer to buy the business. Kodak had bought us at that time. We were a wholly owned subsidiary of Eastman Kodak. And fortunately, we weren't successful. Our, we knew digital was coming. We were doing all the digital testing for Kodak. And Didn't Kodak invent digital? They did. They actually had the patent. Like they patented it. They, they absolutely did. And Kodak spent about $2 billion in 1995 and built digital labs around the world, including in China. My last investor call that I was part of uh, with Wall Street, Kodak took an $800 million write down for the quarter. And it was the third quarter in a row that they wrote down assets related to digital because they were too early in the process. The they, they introduced it. We, we had all these cameras and, and they spent billions and the consumer was not ready for digital, at least digital the way they, they envisioned it. Um, we were already producing digital images for customers. When they brought a roll of film, we put it on a digital disc and gave it back to them as well. So we were doing all the testing and it was really fascinating. We had digital imaging centers across the country where we were converting documents digitally, at, really at the forefront of the digital, I guess, revolution or whatever you want to call it. But they were very, very early on. Uh, the company was valued at $24 billion the day I walked out the door. Today, that'd be about $75 billion, uh, and they don't exist today. They're bankrupt. Um, really just lost their track um, and lost. They got gun shy when they, when they made that massive investment in digital, and Wall Street is not very forgiving. Um, and so fortunately, I had left the company. I went on to do a, a technology startup in Austin. Uh, it was the guys that were working for me are now running uh, TripAdvisor and Travelocity. And I still remember wow. sitting in strategy meetings and these guys trying to help me understand that the future is in having your customers or 
people who were associated with you put the information on the website and and that it was much more believable and and quite frankly i was really slow to get that these guys were not uh they were really on target um and uh that was a really interesting business uh then i took over a struggling company on the verge of bankruptcy back here in san antonio uh got that it was losing 2.1 million a year got that profitable in eight months the investors sold it i went on to the world's largest promotional products supplier uh norwood and uh, we were about a half a billion in revenue and i was running i was a division president running seven of our companies there and uh then i had a uh I'd moved to Indianapolis and then our youngest son got sick and we had to move back to San Antonio. And I took a job with a small family owned business. When I say small it was 20 million in revenue, small for me at the time and was really blessed, had a great team. We took that to just under 80 million, 79 million in three and a half years. What type of business was that? That business was in the home improvement business. Uh, we had 14 offices around the country and grew it. Uh, we started selling through Costco. Uh, we started expanding our product lines and just a great, great team of people. We had a lot of fun, really, really grew that business. And uh, I left there after nine years and uh, wanted to buy my own business or was going to retire. And Kohler Corporation up in Wisconsin called me and asked me to join them and move to Wisconsin. And my wife being a Texan said, you know, if you want to go. I won't change the locks on the doors, but I'm not going with you. Wow. Um, so uh, I ended up consulting and commuting back and forth once or twice a month for a week each time to Wisconsin and absolutely loved it. Yeah. Did that for four and a half years, uh, built them two business units that are now doing a hundred plus million each. And uh, that's when I got a call from Todd, Todd Jarvis, who founded Sterling. And I was literally sitting in Kohler's corporate office uh, working on a strategy plan for a new business. And he said, you want to have lunch? And I said, sure. And he said, how about this afternoon? And I said, well, if you've got a jet, you want to fly to Wisconsin, I'm happy to do that. Anyway, we met. How did, now, how did he know you? How did he know that you existed? Uh, a mutual friend. Um, I was also kind of a, another side gig. I was interim CEO of a Renewal by Anderson franchise. And the owner of that and Todd were friends. And so we would have a, some strategy lunches that I was helping just flesh out some things for both of them and, uh, and a couple other mutual friends. But uh, Todd and I met for six months. I really fell in love with the industry. And he asked me to join. And today I'm the 51% owner. Todd's very involved, uh, 39%. And we have one other partner who owns 10% of the business. And he's he's not involved in the business. Uh, well, I, I, he comes, we meet every two weeks for a couple hours with him. He was a managing partner for Deloitte for their small and medium-sized businesses worldwide. So he brings a great perspective to mm -hmm. us. Uh, and Todd's wife, Carol, is still our CFO. So we've got a great team. We've got a management team that we have here as well, but uh, it sounds like this management team could be running a Fortune 500 company, <laughs> much less uh, an an integration firm in San Antonio. Well, you know, Todd Todd came out of Honeywell and IBB, and you know, big you know Fortune 50 companies like myself, and he got tired of flying around the world every week, literally, and uh, he got into this business because he built a custom home. And the automation was really haphazard. And he said, there's got to be a better way. And he was doing it for massive. He was selling 50, 100, 200 million dollar industrial automation packages uh, to refineries or massive factories. And so he was familiar with the, the big industrial side of the business. Mm -hmm. And he's an electrical engineer. So Todd's role is really the operation side of the business. And I really try to focus most of my time and energy on the sales and marketing, but I, I'm also, I run the company day to day, but we're a, we're a team and we, you know, his strengths are my weaknesses and vice versa. So what is it like, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the layup obvious question. What is it like running a, a smaller 
I, I don't know the exact size of Sterling, so I'll just say a sub $10 million a year uh, a, a integration firm compared to these, you know, 50, $100 million plus enterprises that you were running previously? You know, it, it's really interesting. I love it. Um, when I when I first got here, you know, I I had more, I hate to say it, but I had more vice presidents and senior vice presidents than we have total employees uh, working for me. So it was a big adjustment. Uh, it was a really big adjustment, but it's, you can really make a difference. And we try to run our, our company really with strong Christian principles. And we try to make a difference in our employees' lives and in our customers' lives and not, not just, you know, run a business for, for profit. Um, so I'm, I'm really different from most of the people uh, that will hear this podcast and most of the people in the industry because I didn't grow up in this industry. I came yeah. from outside. And I will tell you, uh, I've said this internally many times, this is the hardest industry I've ever had to grow <laughs> top-line revenue. And that's the, that's the honest truth. It is, it is more challenging than any other industry I've ever been in. What, right, so let's let's jump on that. What what are some of the challenge? What what are some of the characteristics of this industry from your perspective that make it challenging to grow? You know, uh, and there's two sides of this coin, but obviously, as a subcontractor to most of our builders, um, you know, they view subcontractors very differently than I would view a partner. Not all of them. Some of them were really partners, and we do 100% of their business. And we've got a great relationship and we watch out for each other. But some of them, you know, they just use us and it's, it's, it's a race to the bottom. Who's the cheapest? We don't like to play in that, in that sandbox. Uh, we do when we need to. Uh, but, you know, we think we're the best value in the market. We're not the cheapest by any stretch. But it's, it's all about relationships in this industry. Mm. You're not in most of the other businesses that I've run. Um, you could advertise the product, whether you're advertising it to distributors or to the end users, and you can drive value. And I've been, you know, Fox Photo and Eastman Kodak, you couldn't buy film photo finishing or film processing more expensively than us. Uh, so I've always been really in businesses that are, are high touch and high customer service. And that's this mm -hmm. business today, which is what I like about it. But it's, you know, there's so many guys working out of their garage and out of their truck. Um, and those, you know, when I got here, I was like, you know, we had a handful of competitors. No, we don't. We've got, we've got a lot of competitors. Most of them we never see or hear about. I, I bet you hundreds that you don't know that are even there. Absolutely. There, you just go to the, to the distributors and sit in the parking lot and watch these guys come in and out all day buying product and you'll see who your, your competitors are. I remember someone I was, uh, you know, I do, Texas is a great state for our industry and it's a great state for one Firefly. We have a lot of customers throughout Texas. And I remember I was talking to somebody in Dallas and they were, um, you know, they were considering to work with one Firefly and they were saying, but you work with other people. I was like, and at that time I, I gave a number. I said, yeah, we work with about this many people. He's like, yeah, you work with everybody. I was like, we don't work. Do you know how many people are in Dallas calling themselves an integrator? And I actually know because I had some intel from one of the distributors in Dallas. And, and this is a few years ago, uh, but they were doing business with over a thousand companies that were buying CI channel gear from them for local Dallas, Fort Worth jobs. Yeah, we, we actually did a battle plan here which kind of came out of another industry. Um, and we think we've got somewhere between 300 and 350 of those guys just in San Antonio. Um, and, you know, Dallas is probably two to three times bigger Dallas, Fort Worth than San Antonio. And so is Houston. So that doesn't surprise me at all. So in, in that competitive landscape, you really have to find a way to be different. And I'm, I'm assuming that's a part of your strategy. And, and so for those listening, your peers around the country and, and every, every major market in the world has a, a there are integrators. And, uh, and that is your small towns, your big towns. I've learned there are wealthy customers everywhere. That's right. There is no bias on where they live. There just might be more concentrations, but there's, 
there, there's, there's wealthy people everywhere and wealthy people are, you know, that top one, two, three percent of the marketplace that are at least more likely to have an integrator in their life, um, which is the industry that we serve. And so how do you, how do you think about just uh, curious, differentiating yourself? You mentioned customer service and that you enjoy customer service. Is that an area where you guys try to be different? How does the customer know to hire you and not that one-man operation offering, operating out of his home garage? You know, I, I, great question, Ron. I tell builders all the time, for the most part, we all sell the same stuff, okay? There's a few products that we have exclusively or that the, the small guys can't get. But for the most part, we're all selling the same products. What's going to differentiate us is our relationship with you. When you call, we're going to pick up the phone. Okay. If it's on a Saturday, if it's on a Sunday, you know, Friday night, we're going to pick up the phone and we're going to support you. And the second thing is, you know, we offer a service that's available to anybody else in the industry or most people in the industry where we have 27, 365 customer service coverage. That phone will always be answered, that email, that text message, doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. And that's a real differentiator. And our clients, you know, are the upper end of the of the spectrum from an income level, and that's what they expect. We're doing custom homes like the majority of our counterparts across the country. And those clients, they have the means and the ability, and that's the kind of service that they expect. And so we offer that, and we we think with that quality and that service and the technicians that are on call, we've got the best value in the marketplace. We're not for everybody, obviously, um, but we, Todd and Carol built a great business here and, you know, we've essentially doubled it since I've been here, but it's still, uh, it's, you're, you're grinding it out every day. Uh, but it's been a great, as I said earlier, it's been a great year, year and a half or so. And, uh, you know, who knows how long it'll last, but, uh, we're, we're taking advantage of, of it while we can. I want to go through a, a couple of just hot, very now issues. And then I want to circle back actually to Kodak. Cause I, I know you, you teach uh, university level classes sometimes, right? And you'll, you'll talk about Kodak in those classes. Uh, I do. Yep. So we can, we can touch on that if you'd like later on. Yeah. I, I, I just have a couple of questions there. Um, but to bring it to the the present and some of some of the challenges uh, our industry is facing right now, first is manpower, uh, manpower, people power, woman power, just people. Resources are of a, a finite supply, and I'm hearing that there are people that are are saying I can't do anymore. The demand for our services is so high, but we have a people shortage. What are you finding in your market? Um, and do you, do you have any, do you, are you experiencing that? Or do you have any ways that you are approaching that that might be helpful to others? Yeah, so a, a year ago, we had exactly the same issue that everybody else is facing. Um, but we had this bubble of business. Uh, we were doing an MDU project downtown, really the first luxury MDU in San Antonio. And we were doing the top two floors, all the penthouses and all the large units. And so, you know, we knew this bubble was coming of significant business. So we had to hire up and we did. And prior to that, we were really struggling and we just, we just put a real focus on it. Our HR person was very aggressive. We worked with a couple of recruiters, uh, both from the industry and outside the industry. And we were able to hire four or five people about a year ago, okay, mm. last late summer and fall. Um, I think that, you know, there was some commercial uh, fallout on the commercial uh, side of the business and there was, there was technicians that were looking. Uh, so we were, we were lucky in that regard and we were able to, to staff up. I will tell you, we, we currently have a, a job for a customer service coordinator that we have posted on Indeed, and I've been shocked. We have over, in less than a week, we have over 120 applicants for that position. And uh, I don't know what's changed, but you know, Texas cut off the um, the additional unemployment support about six, seven weeks ago, I believe. Now, I don't know if that's part of it. I I, I really don't know. But we've never had the kind of response 
that we've gotten. Give, give us a comparison prior to, I mean, it, there's an interesting correlation does not equal causation, but there's an interesting correlation in the state turning off that funding and now you having a spike in applicants. What would it have been prior to that? I'd say 20 or 30, maybe. Um, the 5X, 6X. Yeah, it's it's just, we're, we're just shocked. Matter of fact, there was a Slack message this morning internally and and somebody counted them up. There was over 120. And we we think it's great because we've got some great candidates. Um, and we also we also changed up our our job posting, made it a much hipper. Um, I guess uh, we used a third party to write it up. And so that's probably part of it. Probably a lot of things. But we're really excited uh, that we've got some great candidates um, that we can look at for this position. Tell us about this third party. What type? You can either name them or name the type of entity. Because again, I know there are so many people in our industry that are hurting around this people issue. And if you have any tips or tricks, that sounds like a <laughs> that sounds like a trick there. So, uh, is there anything you're willing to share? Yeah, I'll. I mean, I'll share it. I don't know if they're ready for me to share it, but because uh, I think we're we're a little bit of a pilot project, uh, but we're part of One Vision. And uh, One Vision is creating a new resource for their clients, which were their client, where they're going to uh, do the screening and do the promoting of the position and help us hire. So they wrote the they wrote the position description. We gave them all the key data. Uh, they wrote it and they used. Uh, I'm trying to remember this. Uh, I call her a young girl. She's probably in her 30s, but. Uh, you know, uh, they they kind of follow her her uh, suggestions on how to write position descriptions and and job descriptions and so they're following some methodology. They're not just pulling it you know out of air. They're they're following a, a, a method. And you're because you're a One Vision customer. That's a part of the service bundle that you're getting from them or or working with them. That, that's right. It's a they they've kind of got two parts to it. So I don't. I don't know if it's totally finalized, uh, but we're a we're a beta program for them on this. Uh, so okay. uh, I don't know if they're ready to roll it out. I think they I think they are very close. But I, I we we've been so far very pleased with with what's happened. The the whole interaction with them uh, so far on this project has been great. Now that's that's awesome. All right, next subject. Is uh, and and Joey and his team at One Vision got a nice shout out there, <laughs> and so we'll uh, we'll make sure we tag him uh, after the show. Um, next subject is uh, uh, shortages uh, on chips, and I, I want to say I was just this morning on Twitter watching a feed coming out of China that I guess there's COVID Delta outbreaks at some of the ports in China, and it's going to further back. There's there's a port, I guess the largest port in the world has now been backed up for a week, fully closed. And that is supposedly not even hit the U.S. market yet in terms of the impact. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on, you know, your manufacturers and their ability to get you gear and, and what you guys are doing about it. Yeah. So I actually pay close attention in one of my prior companies. I spent a lot of time in China. Uh, and so I know the country fairly well. And our, our youngest son was working over there until COVID broke out uh, in Shenzhen. So it's actually um, the port is Ningbo. And it's actually the third largest in China. And mm. what it's done is it's backed up uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen, which are the two largest ports in China, just dramatically. They've been closed about 10 days. And everything I've been reading, there's also, you know, there was a lot of flooding about a week or two before that in China. And a lot of the copper uh, products that and chips have copper in them are coming out of that region of China. So I think that everything I read, uh, I think there's more to come there. What we've done at Sterling and like, and we were, you mentioned earlier, we were just at the ProSource conference two weeks ago. And a lot of people, I'd say the majority of the integrators there are doing exactly what we've done. And we used to really be a just-in-time shop. So, you know, a week or two before that job was ready to go, we would get the product start coming in and we'd stage it. Now, when we get an order, we pretty much order it 
immediately. And our inventory went from just in time of about 160,000 to close to a million. Uh, and so we've avoided a fair amount of that. We still have the same struggles, but some of the things we've also ordered, some of the Sonos product and some of the things we've ordered back stock that, you know, we don't stock that stuff typically. So we're, we're still having the same challenges everybody else has. I think that, you know, it's anybody's guess. Is this going to get worse? How long is it going to go? Uh, I will tell you, China doesn't play games. You know, they much, much easier than the U.S. They can shut a city, a factory, a, a port down in a heartbeat. And I, I think they're, they're proving that they're going to continue to do that. What I read this morning is that it's day by day. And I also read this morning that it's not the whole port of Ningbo. It's a third of it. So, you know, it's yeah. hard to know exactly what's coming out of China. Uh, but I think the, the prior to all of this, what I had heard is the chip shortage should be resolved for the most part by the spring of next year, but we're going to still deal with it. And then as a matter of the manufacturing capacity, because they're rebuilding that massive factory in Taiwan. And so we should be coming out of in the spring, whether that's true or not, it remains to be seen. We're going to continue uh, to do what we've been doing. And that is order the product as soon as we get that deposit check from the client. So is it a fair statement in your observation that as it relates to shortages of gear, there might be more pain in front of us? I, I don't think there's any question. The question is the degree. Is it going to kind of go along where it's been going along or is it going to spike up for a month or two because of this port and the flooding damage? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. And your recommendation, or at least the strategy you're practicing, is that as soon as you book the job, you order all the gear. That's right. And quite frankly, if you've got a client that, you know, is trying to make a decision, that that helps motivate the client as well. You know, we want to have your house ready when you move in. The sooner you write that check and accept this proposal, the sooner we're putting it on order. And I think that's another silver lining, is it not? That, exactly. That's a and they, they see it every day in the news, cars, appliances, furniture. So they know it's, it's real. They know it's, it's not made up. And so they, they, they accept it and they buy into it. Okay. All right. Next third hot topic. I told you I had a bunch of, a couple of hot topics yep. lined up. All right. So you were at the ProSource event two weeks ago. I watched it on social media. I don't think I saw one person wearing a mask. And here we are. Now uh, it's Wednesday, August 18th, and it's breaking news nonstop for the past week. Manufacturer after manufacturer pulling out of Cedia over Delta. What is your, what is your opinion? Of, let's just talk Cedia first and then the rest of the events for the fall. Do you, will you guys go to Cedia? Uh, and if so, why or why not? Well, real quick, just because I was at the, at the ProSource event. There were some masks there. There weren't a lot, but there were some. Okay, there were some. I'm just saying what I saw on social media. We, we the rest of us voyeurs were only watching Instagram right. and, and LinkedIn and Facebook. But no, I, I trust there would be some. But but the topic of conversation at the happy hours and lunches was really, do you think CD is going to actually happen? And are you going? And most people, this was two weeks ago, uh, were taking a wait and see. And we were actually in that camp. Uh, very quickly thereafter, we decided we're not going to send anyone. We started getting some of the major manufacturers kind of whispering in our ear that they were not going to be going. And so we canceled our hotel rooms and we are not sending anyone to Cedia. Um, that's a decision that we feel good about. We've got three of our technicians out with COVID as I sit here today. Um, we had a fourth, but he came back. He, he recovered great. Uh, did his 14 days of, of isolation, and he started back yesterday. So we want to do the right thing for everybody in the company. And quite frankly, honestly, with, with the Delta variant, I didn't want to go in a, in a hall with, you know, three, four, 5,000 other people and uh, not knowing, you know, who, is, who has the vaccine, who doesn't. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at shows and events for the rest of the year. I'm hopeful that the Delta variant, uh, actually driving in this morning, I was listening to CNBC and, and the former CDC director uh, said he thinks this is going to be a huge shock, but it's going to be really short-lived. 
So mm. if that's the case, uh, we'll we'll look at things on a case by case basis uh, and see where we go. We have reinstituted our mask policy for anytime our technicians go to a house, anytime our salespeople go to a house. Um, so we have we have kind of we haven't gone back to the strict measures where we took temperature of everybody coming in every day. Uh, you had to wear a mask full time in the office. Uh, if you're vaccinated in our office, you don't have to wear a mask. Um, but we have we have when we're dealing with clients, we've gone back more cautious. Uh, do you have a prediction? Uh, and and I'll say it, it'll be worth five dollars or or a cup of coffee. But do you have a prediction uh, from these uh, from the CDS show? Um, you know, I'll, I'm going to say I don't want to insult anyone, but many of the big big names have pulled out. Um, but yet the show, and I, I would imagine Emerald does not have a, a financial um, obligation to cancel the show. In fact, I don't even know if they could afford to cancel the show. But do you have a prediction on whether the show will go on or not? You know, my gut is just from a pure business standpoint uh, that the unless uh, the city uh, puts a lockdown or says no more meetings or that type of thing, the show will happen in some form because financially Emerald, if they cancel the show, I think they've got to start giving refunds to all of the manufacturers who reserve space and put money down. And again, I don't know what your contracts are with them or manufacturers contracts are. If they don't cancel it, my guess is they probably don't have to do that. So I think the show's going to happen in some form or fashion. I only know of one significant manufacturer who has said come hell or high water, they're going. Uh, and I've probably seen 20 to 25 of the bigger names uh, who have canceled, including several today. So, um, and, and I've talked to fellow integrators around the country who, you know, a week ago were attending and today they're not. Um, today they're not. Yeah. Today they're not. They talked to a guy last night on my way home, uh, canceled eight hotel rooms yesterday. So, yeah. And for those uh, watching live uh, and or our, our, our podcast listeners, today's August 18th and this morning news broke, Lutron pulled out, Crestron pulled out, and uh, Sonance pulled out. So uh, that's only to add to the list of all the vendors that had pulled out, you know, over the previous week or so. So uh, it is a, a definitely interesting times. In, in your business career, Chris, have you ever seen anything like this? Is there any precedent or maybe even in your research of, of you sound like a well-read man. Is there any anything you can compare this to? No, uh, not at all. Uh, I have read about the 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 pandemic early in the century and kind of trying to figure out what happens to this thing. And it kind of just disappeared. I don't know that that's what's going to happen here. Everything I read is we're going to have to live with this kind of like the flu going forward, but I've never seen anything like this and uh, hope I never see anything like it again in my life. Well, amen from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> let's make that, let's make that happen. All right. So take, take me back in time here. Um, I, I want to jump to Kodak, and I, I just want to pull this thread that they uh, were one of the largest companies, most well-known brands in the world. Twenty years is it thirty? We'd call it thirty years ago, and today they're gone. Uh, what is the and and they invented digital, and today digital cam. I mean, people buy the new iPhone because of the digital camera. I mean, that's the reason people move into that. That's when my son or wife lobby me for the next phone. It's because the, it has this many more pixels or it's better at taking pictures at night. And I don't, you know, what's your perspective? What, what was a takeaway there from you? Because you were out when that, uh, I would say, when the downfall began. So you have this interesting, you were inside and, and then you were on the outside and you watched it implode. Yeah, I think there were several things that happened, you know, and I, I kind of watched them unfold. We were a wholly owned subsidiary of Eastman Kodak. So we saw both from the inside and the outside. Kodak was so profitable for so many years on a on a roll of 35 millimeter film. You know, um, they were printing money. They were, it, you know, you'd go to the grocery store or drugstore and you'd buy it for, you know, $2.50 back then. And it probably cost them a quarter to make. 
Okay. At, wow. the, at the most. Okay. It was a cash cow. And there's a lot of businesses like that today. And so Kodak started seeing this cash cow maybe was going to go away because digital was out there. It wasn't really in the industry, but digital was out there. And the one hour photo labs had come along and there was a lot of technology from the, the camera manufacturers, the Nikons and the Canons who had nothing to do with silver halide photography development per se. And so Kodak said, you know, rightfully so, we need to be on the forefront of this. And there was a lot of mistakes made uh, in that rollout of that technology. And they got, they got timid and they didn't really, in my mind, uh, have, a, have a strategy that was coherent. And then they got scared, okay, because it failed. And, and I, we were all part of that. We thought the timing was right. And we were doing all of the testing and the customers loved, you know, getting both the digital and the traditional. What none of us knew is that the customer wasn't ready to make that, that drop off the cliff and go totally digital. And that, mm -hmm. that was the case. And, and that's okay. And, and, you know, for a company that size to write off $800 million in a quarter, it's pretty significant. But they got scared because Wall Street is really unforgiving. And it just cratered their stock and all of the senior senior level guys at the corporate level you know a huge amount of their compensation was stock based mm. so they started making decisions based on promote propping up the stock in my opinion and not stock buybacks things like that buybacks uh and just making decisions on product to keep the cash cow going and not, not really saying, okay, we, we were too early here. We've got these patents and they started selling off patents. Um, and you know, they, I don't remember a quarter for a year um, after that, that they didn't have a reorganization and take a charge of a quarter of a billion dollars or so, you know, and, and a company like that, that's a lot of money, but it's not, you can't, you can still get over that. And so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of that going on, but I think the biggest thing was, and it, you hear it so much in wall street, they were looking at the next quarter and we have to, I, I can tell you, I can say this today, but there were times at the end of a quarter where we would get a call from the factory and they would send out 18 wheeler tractor trailer loads of film and paper and they would sit in our parking lot until the first of the next quarter so they could say it was sold and show the profit. And we would turn it, we'd send them back the first day of the next quarter. Um, it almost sounds like stock manipulation. No, or... not, and let me tell you, you, you'd be shocked at what companies do. Um, and, and there was, you know, I don't, I don't think it was illegal, but it, it was all designed about the quarterly earnings. And yeah. you're, you're really, you get the quarterly earnings announced and now you're worried about the, the current quarter. So, and it, they didn't take the long-term view. And I think that's, that's really uh, what happened there. And, and then it was a, they replaced the CEO about every six months because they couldn't get a strategy that was working. All right. So let's bring it to the present. I know that you uh, have been a, a I'm going to use the word, you've been a disciple of uh, Paul and Steve over at Vital, and you've been uh, following or utilizing their business metrics tools, BI for CI. Um, talk, why did you initially investigate that? And I know you were early, pre-Bravis, pre pre-the, you know, pre of the sale and all that. And, and where, how has it helped you with your business today? And then are you still using it? We are absolutely still using it. Uh, we look at those metrics every month. And what drove me to that is I'm always a benchmarking and best practices person. Whatever industry I've been in, I look at who's performing the best. When I came into this industry, you know, everybody probably listening and, and most people in the industry, they know what good looks like, okay? Or at least they think they know what good looks like. I didn't know what good looks like. We were a profitable business but I didn't know if our numbers were good, bad, or indifferent. And so I needed something and there, there's, not, there's not any group within the industry, or at least that I was aware of, where you could share that data and where that it was apples to apples. 
And one of the things Paul and Steve did, and for a lot of us, including us, it was like pulling teeth to get your chart of accounts so everybody's counting the numbers the same way. But mm-hmm. every month I can look, and even if I think I had a great month or a bad month, and I can look in really six core metrics, and I can see how I perform against about 40 other companies. Now, I don't know who those companies are, but I know they're all within similar uh, ranges of volume and revenue that I produce. And so I can check and say, wow, you know, we're sixth best, sixth best out of 40 here, but maybe we're 23rd in this category. And then I sit down with my team every month and we go through those numbers. And it, quite frankly, before we had that, they really, you know, they thought they were doing pretty good and they were, but there was so much more upside. So it's really benefited us from a, what I call a best practices and benchmarking. And I can look out and say, you know, this gross profit or this net profit or this efficiency with our technicians and, and benchmark what we're doing against 40 other companies around the country that are measuring it the same way. Because quite frankly, when I go to ProSource or I go to CD and you talk to the other guys at lunch or dinner or over drinks, and somebody says, well, my gross profit or my labor is, you know, we're all measuring it differently. There's no yeah. standard in the industry. And there still isn't, but, but Vital, at least for the companies that are in it, Vital has put together a standard that we can benchmark ourselves against each other. Why do you think so few in our industry have adopted this method of, of benchmarking data and joining the BI for CI club? Well, first off, like I said, you've got to change really how you report. Uh, you've got to change your chart of accounts. You've got to change how you recognize revenue in most cases. I mean, there might be an, an occasional company that does it the way already, but it's a lot of work. Okay. And quite frankly, we had a lot of pushback internally. Is it worth all the effort and energy that you have to put into it? And I would say the answer is resounding yes. I think, I think, you know, I talked to someone at the ProSource show and they were real close. And they told me that the reason that they didn't pull the trigger and what Steve and Paul told me early on is exactly what this guy said is it's a lot of work to get on that program. And Um, that's what, that's what he told me. That's what Paul and Steve shared. So I think that's the biggest reason. And, you know, fortunately for us, Carol, our CFO, uh, came out of corporate America as well. So she's, she's really great at the numbers. We have great financials. Um, and, and she adopted it and has championed it all the way through as well. Uh, I'll speak from first person experience. Uh, We, one Firefly, recently hired a consultant, a management consultant, and this management consultant is helping us in multiple areas of the business. And one of those elements that I've been missing in the, the, the 14 years of this business, but really in the last six, as we um, solely focused on marketing, is the idea of comparing our benchmarks to other marketing agencies in, in North America. I was missing the ability to do that. And when we brought in this consultant, he said, I can help you do that, but you have to change everything. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it is a, it is uh, Taylor, uh, you know, our VP of operations and finance and I are sitting on about six months of change that have to happen behind the scenes between our finances and our uh, CPA. But on the other side of that work, we're going to be able to compare our performance across you know, all of these important KPIs to the rest of the world of marketing agencies. And, yeah, and I'll, I'll add, Ron, that for some people, there's not the need or the value to do what, what I needed because they've yeah. grown up in this business and they know as long as they have a financially healthy company or in their mind, financially healthy and they can make payroll and they've got you know, uh, a cushion of cash or whatever, um, then they're comfortable with that. I can tell you, having having bought and sold over 30 businesses for companies and being directly involved, uh, a lot of times, and we bought a company here, a small company, 
uh, and the guy thought he was profitable. And we sat down with him and showed him on a piece of paper he was not profitable. And so it it's really valuable if you really want to you really want to know. But I I think most people are comfortable with where they are, and they ignorance is bliss. They say yeah, and they didn't have the need that I had um, to do that. So. Could you imagine yourself running and, and growing and improving Sterling without that data? You know, I really couldn't. And it's not a secret, but one of the things when I, when I uh, finalized the agreement to uh, buy 51% of the company is I said, I want, I w- I'm happy to do this. I want to do it, but I'm going to do it only if we agree as a company to go on vital. It was so important to me. That yeah. without that, I may not be here today, honestly, just because yeah. I need that because, you know, that's how I grew up and that's how I was trained to manage a business. So uh, I I think it's indispensable for me, but for others, maybe not so much. Well, guess what, Chris? You have the one and only uh, Mr. Paul Starkey right here tuned in and he goes, thanks, Chris, for totally getting. And I did not know Paul was going to tune in and watch this show. Uh, that's great, Paul, that you're, you're tuned in. And uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give uh, Paul a shout out uh, because sitting right over here, I have Paul's new book, Hitting for the Cycle. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get Paul uh, get an early draft from Paul. And no, I will not send this to anyone. You got to go buy the book. Uh, but I was able to review it for Paul, and, and I was honored. He asked me to give a, a testimonial or quote for the back of the book. And uh, Paul really and the team at Vital they really have a formula for success for this industry. So I and to have someone like you. Chris, to advocate that and kind of validate that, it, it is it puts further wind in the sail that there is a better way, a more profitable way to run an integration business. I mean, you can be busy and not necessarily be productive or profitable. Yeah, and and you've you've uh, clearly understood that, Chris. Uh, I want to thank you, sir, for coming on show one eighty three. It has uh, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. If folks want to learn more about you or follow you or get in touch, uh, what would be the recommended uh, ways to have people reach you? Well, you can, you can reach out on LinkedIn. Um, you can reach out on Facebook uh, or you can, my email is C-E-D-E-L-E-N at sterlinghometech.com. You can reach out here or call our office or I'd be happy to, uh, talk with anybody that has any questions or wants to know anything more about any thoughts I've shared here. It's been a real pleasure for me and uh, don't hesitate to reach out. It's one of the, one of the things that I enjoy doing is, is sharing and meeting people and just sharing thoughts and comparing notes. Amen. I see my team has dropped down into the show notes. Uh, Chris's email. Uh, we'll also put the, the website at sterlinghometech.com. If you want to check out their business site, and uh, and I, I'm going to just give this because this will go into the podcast. I'm going to give this audio. Paul is uh, making sure I shout out that all proceeds from the purchase of the book, uh, hitting for the cycle, all proceeds are going to charity. So Paul is running a really a fantastic charity. He is uh, helping people in need, and uh, he's doing amazing things over there. So we'll put links down to the the charity and the show notes as well. And uh, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Ron, I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Automation Unplugged. For a full transcript of this show and all previous shows, head over to our website at onefirefly.com forward slash AU. There you'll find links to all transcripts, show notes, Facebook Live recordings, and resources mentioned during the show. If you enjoyed this episode and like to hear more, follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please follow us on social media. We are at One Firefly LLC on all platforms. 
Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Automation Unplugged as we dive deeper into technology trends and the fascinating people that make up the custom integration industry. Bye for now.